welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me, as usual, for our Tuesday broadcast is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Um, additionally, someone well-known to the listeners of this podcast, Bob Greenlee. Uh, Bob, among many other things, is an expert on energy and climate, and we want to debate uh, some of those issues coming off the, the Scotland Summit. So welcome, guys. Hey, nice to talk to you. Yeah, nice to be here. Bradley, so we're going to talk about climate, and then we're also going to talk about the infrastructure piece that you and Bob wrote that's in Fast Company. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so that was published on Friday, and we're going to go through that, but we're going to get to that at the end of the session. So we're going to start by talking about the Climate Summit. Um, I guess I'm going to throw out a really general question, which is, did anything happen there that you know makes a damn bit of difference? Let's put it that way. Not that I can tell. Uh, it seems like they all basically said, we want to try to reach the goals, but we're not willing to make the political sacrifices necessary to reach the goals, but we don't want to look like we failed. So we will make up some process and say we're keeping 1.5 alive or whatever nonsense cliche they came up with. So look, ho hopefully I'm wrong, uh, but it does lead to a larger point that we'll discuss, which is I just don't know that there's a political solution to this problem. But Bob, you know this stuff better than I do. Did they get anything done? No. No, I mean, unless failing to get something done counts as getting something done. <laughs> yeah. um, they didn't. I mean, look, this is the this falls into the you had one job scenario. They the job of the of the COP process is to keep people on plan to meet the climate goal, which is that temperatures will raise no more than one point five percent, and the path right now is at two point four percent temperature raises. And that's not great. Effectively, all they said is come back next year with plans to get there. And we all agree we still want to get there. Um, Bob, let me ask you a really dumb question. Um, when you say the 2.4 uh, temperature raise, I mean, it doesn't stop there. What do you mean by 2.4? Like, obviously, we're going to blow past 1.5, but but or pretty obviously. But what, what what's the 2.4 figure? Where does that come from? So it, these are all these are if you look at what everyone has planned. So the one thing that has happened as a process of this whole COP process is that every country has come in with their plan to try to address climate change. And if you add all the plans together, the sum of the plans say that temperatures will increase by 2.4 degrees over um, the pre-industrialized period. Um, and that's, that is beyond the 1.5 degree level that scientists believe is essential to avoid significant climate impacts. Right. So they need. So Bob, if if we made you emperor today and said, make sure we don't go past one point five, and it doesn't matter what the ramifications are to do that, what would you do? So that's it's interesting. That's um, there's a few things. So let me let's let's take a step back and say, well, what in the U.S. The first thing I would do, obviously, is I would take China completely off coal. Right. And you say, well, that screws China and India's development to take them off coal. Fine. But I'm emperor, so I can do that. Um, but that's a that's a huge and growing part of this, not because of the amount that they've contributed to date, but because that is where the growth in the greenhouse emissions is coming. Um, the U.S. spends on its emissions. It's largely petroleum and some coal still. So, yes, I would take us off coal. And I'd move us to electric vehicles. I mean, that's but that that being said, the U.S. is going towards that direction anyway. Everyone is moving towards an EV standard um, and, and consumers seem relatively OK with that as a process. 
So the question is, what do you do about China and India? And what is the real world answer to that if, if it's not you being the emperor? The real this is why they didn't get anything done, because India and China's answer to the real world answer is let us keep doing it or pay us. Right. Right. And that's not a real world. Neither of those are really real world answers. Do they really mean pay us like they have this idea of, of, a, of a dollar figure that they would accept to, to, to go off coal? That's I mean, when people talk about this idea of climate reparations, effectively, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about payments from the global north, from the rich industrialized countries to the industrializing company countries to allow them to avoid the greenhouse emissions they would have otherwise taken and move directly into electrification and some of the other um, some of the other steps they would need to take to meet our green and to meet our you know climate change targets. If if you're President Xi and you're looking at this, tell me which of the things he's saying to himself. One would be climate change very well may be real and catastrophic, uh, but you know I need to hang on to power and that just means as much growth as possible, as quickly as possible. So that could be option number one. Option number two would be um, climate change is real, but the more chaos it produces in society, the better position China is to take advantage of that because we are a centralized government and economy and the US and the rest of the democratized world is a mess. And therefore, you know, the impact of climate change actually is our advantage. Or three would be, shit, I am really worried about this. Uh, we got to do something. And I guess four would be, I don't believe in the first place, which I guess is what, what Trump's position is. Where, where do you think he thinks? I think he's at two. I think he thinks climate change is an issue. I don't think he's at four. I think he they understand it. If you've ever seen pictures of the Beijing uh afternoon or Beijing skyline at this point, you'll know that they are people in China are very well aware of the issue. But I think they think that right now their kind of governmental structure can better manage the process of climate change. And they would much prefer to externalize all the headaches around climate change to everybody else in the world. In what way are they better equipped to handle the, the effects of climate change than say we are? They're a, they're a demand economy. So they can force they can force their businesses into making choices around the amount of electricity to be used and otherwise. Now, obviously, China has real problems with energy production, right? They don't have enough energy. They need to build more facilities and they could be incented, I'm sure, to build, you know, with cheaper loans or freer, freer money internationally to build more clean power plants. But that's not what they want to do. They want to build what's cheapest so that they can juice growth as much as possible. Now, Bradley, your position, uh, which you've alluded to already in this podcast, but certainly before as well, is that there is no political solution. It's 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 got to be technological. Where do you see the most promising technological advances uh, having the impact that's necessary? Do you, do you see? Yeah, it? I mean, so let me just take a step back. If that's yeah, okay, yeah. and explain why there's no real political solution in my mind, which is just, look, if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, if you know one thing is that we believe that policy outputs are the result of political inputs uh, and mobile voting is designed to be you know, potentially a solution to reshape the political inputs to get better policy outputs. But if we believe that politicians will always do what is in their short-term political interest ahead of anything else, and that is just human nature, um, then, th then really it's hard to imagine that leaders from all over the world 
will be willing to do the kind of things that Bob said um, at their own expense and peril. So sure, could you put a couple hundred billion dollars in the overall reconciliation plan for various climate measures? Yeah. And and could those things be helpful? Sure. Um, but President Xi or, or Prime Minister Modi in India, they don't want to say uh, to their to their constituents, yeah, you can't have a TV, you can't have a car, you can't have air conditioning, because no matter how much of a stranglehold you think they have on power, people can get thrown out. So if you assume that politicians are always going to do whatever it takes to appease the greatest number of voters at any given time, and therefore that requires asking them to sacrifice as little as possible, it means that expecting politicians to be able to be the ones to solve this problem, I, I think, is unrealistic. And as we just saw in, in Scotland, they had a week of theater that resulted in absolutely nothing. So it, in my mind, it, it's got to be a technological solution. I think there are a few possible things, and I'm sure Bob will have others. But the, the biggest one to me would be carbon sequestration, right? Can you take carbon out of the atmosphere and actually, rather than just saying, hey, we can only handle another increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius to how could we actually decrease the whole thing because we can suck CO2 out, store it underground, uh, and put us in a much better position. I don't think the technology seems to be quite there yet, but there are a lot of people working on this. And if I were uh, Congress right now of that $300 billion or whatever's in there for climate change, the first thing I would be doing is saying, how can we help speed up this R&D uh, so that, you know, we can really kind of hit some big swings? The second, you know, we had a I guess you you'll remember Maddie Hall from Living Carbon on our podcast maybe a month or two ago. Yeah. Uh, she's working on trees that can absorb more carbon dioxide, right? Now, whether that's going to work, I don't know. But, you know, I suspect there's 50 different things like that that all, you know, at that scale could start to have a real impact. And then the third is something Bob and I have been talking about for, for years now is kind of massive reforestation uh, of the earth. Um, and, you know, uh, that maybe is impacted by technology because the more and more that we can make cities uh, livable and appealing and places where, where, where people want to be um, through the use of technology, uh, then the, the fewer people you will have to move um, in order to do massive reforestation. Um, so, so arguably all of the urban tech, all of the different things like, you know, scooters or rideshare, Airbnb, or whatever it is that makes cities sort of better places to live. Um, I think those are all important too. But Bob, what do you think? Well, wait, hold on. I want to phrase the question to Bob okay. in a particular way, just because Bradley, as usual, you covered a tremendous amount of ground in a relatively short amount of time. Um, so, Bob, is there anything, starting with the sort of political analysis that Bradley had about, you know, why this is just an impossibility as a global problem to be solved by politicians um, through the some of the technological analysis? Where is there anything that tripped your wire that where you're like, well, I'm not sure I see it that way or you disagreed? No, I mean, look, on the politics of it, I don't disagree at all. I don't, if what's holding up the process right now is the idea that industrialized countries will get their citizens to pay taxes to pay to do a wealth transfer to developing countries, I see zero opportunity for that ever to work politically. Yeah. I mean, you know, people just do not pay their taxes to give money to other people. That's not that's not how the whole system works politically. Um, Bob, if there were – sorry, let me just oh, throw in yeah. one question there. If, if there were a form of global UBI, which you and I have talked about at different points – that included various sort of requirements or incentives that push people towards uh, making in their own self-interest to, to be energy conscious. Um, do you think that could work? So the closest thing to that working is what they have been trying right now, which is effectively UBI for businesses. Mm -hmm. So this idea of corporate minimum taxes and getting corporate taxation closer. Um, I think 
because businesses are global citizens, I think that could theoretically happen. Um, the idea of getting a collective action problem around individual income taxes, no, I, I, I don't see it happening realistically. I mean, people want to see the results of their taxes. They want to see the results of their government. It's why people ultimately can and should care most about their mayoral and local elections more than, honestly, federal elections. Because you want to know where your money is going and what it's being used for, and I just I get to I get the sense that particularly because our incomes are so unequal globally, that people would feel like they were getting the short end of the stick on a UBI type framework, and then they just wouldn't want to do it. What about on the technological front, uh, Bob? The the are you an optimist in terms of carbon sequestration? Like, is that something that, uh, I mean, this article that, 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 that we talked about, well, we haven't talked about it yet, but by David Wallace Wells in New York magazine had some pretty negative views on sort of reforestation as a, as a sustainable long-term strategy, which I was surprised by, cause I had no, no idea about any of that. Um, but, but obviously there are other techniques on carbon sequestration that, that, that he was very positive about. Where are you on that in that area? So I, I think three things. One, um, on sequestration, I'm positive. I think if you find the right geology, the technology does work. You can sequester carbon. It is doable. Um, the problem is these are huge infrastructure pro- projects, and this is – We'll touch on what we talk on at the end of this segment. But, you know, these projects take a long time to come to fruition. So we do need to start now. We do need to start promoting them now. But sequestration unquestionably is a part of the solution. If we can't get people to fall within the guidelines, we have to take carbon dioxide out of the air. And the only way to do that at scale is through sequestration. Um, The biggest thing, and I guess the one place that, I guess I might think about this differently than Bradley and that it's a technology only solution is there is a big government component to what has to happen with both sequestration and deforestation. And that's that the federal government, which is a huge landowner and has an incredibly large opportunity to do sequestration projects, to do reforestations on federal lands needs to move more quickly to do some of these things. I mean, the, you know, the Biden administration came out full of fury at the beginning in January with this idea that they were going to pursue 30 by 30, which is an idea that 30 percent of our public lands would be held in some type of conservation. And that promptly fizzled out because they couldn't get their head around how to actually make that work. So I do think if if the government could get control of and manage the politics of their own lands there's actually a tremendous amount they could do within their own existing authority. Yeah. I would also say that that I have concerns about John Kerry as the nation's climate czar in that I know he's good friends with Biden and I know that he knows Washington. But if you believe that mainly the solution is technological and not political, having someone who only knows the inside game of politics, you know, to me, is never really going to get the point or solve it. Um, and, you know, I, I think we need someone who's much more of a tech visionary given the the resources to try to push this thing through as opposed to another politician. Let's stay on the subject of sort of uh, U.S. politics and, and environmentalism here um, on a couple of different ways of looking at it. One, I mean, this is this is something that just happened over the weekend in New York. There was this kind of crazy weather. There was a couple of hailstorms around. There was a tornado in, in uh, Long Island. 
um, it's it's starting to feel as if like these this freaky weather is hitting you know almost all sections of the U.S. Um, in different ways. Obviously, is this a is this a political motivating force uh, or or not? You would think it would be um, because it seems very logical that it should be. But you know, there are still a lot of politicians in this country that deny that climate change even exists, let alone is willing to do anything about it. Um, they tend to come from states uh, in the South that have gotten really hard hit by increasing strength and frequency of hurricanes and things like that. And so they're they're living the damage of it. And we're seeing more floods, droughts, wildfires, landslides, tornadoes, all of that stuff, which arguably should translate into change perceptions by voters, which lead to change perceptions by politicians. Um, but so far, it has not done so in my my view. Is there uh, the, a possibility of a, of, a, of a sort of meaningful Green Party in the U.S. in the, in the foreseeable future? I mean, if there is something, for example, like mobile voting, does that, does that help? Yeah. That? They, they, yeah. Look, I would love to see more of a parliamentary system here in general. I mean, so far, the Green Party has basically just played spoiler uh, in a couple elections, usually managed to actually help the Republican win as opposed to the Democrat, uh, right. while the Democrats are closer to their point of view. Um, but yeah, and look, we've talked about this before, but if – so. I think creating new parties or making them effective is very, very hard to the point where I'm not even sure that it's doable. However, if you look at the existing tension within both the Republican and Democratic parties among their own members, uh, you could see a world where Democrats split off between socialists and kind of centrists and Republicans split off between kind of Trumpers and centrists. Um, if that were to happen, uh, then maybe the Socialist Party also becomes a, a version of the Green Party. Bob, if uh, if your child said to you, um, I, I want to spend my career fighting uh, climate change, uh, how, what's the best way to do that? Do you ever do you have a suggestion or recommendation? Yeah, I mean, first, I would I would tell them wholeheartedly do so. But I would say become a technologist, you know, use technology to solve the process and preferably enrich yourself. So doing um, because I'm, I'm kind of where Bradley is. I think this is these are issues that are going to need to be solved with market supports. They're going to need to be solved with technology. And what we need to be doing is trying to find ways to incent and make it easier for these technologies to actually come through. And that's, I mean, that's the way that it's going to be the answer. What I really want them not to do is to become diplomats and spend weeks on end in Glasgow, you know, arguing about the, the language of this. They need to get in the field and actually do stuff. Because that's, that's what's going to move the needle here is people making actual personal change on these things. Um, is there any hope in the U.S. of resuscitating the the political profile of nuclear energy? Is that something you see as... as, as yeah. Possible? I mean, I, I hope so, um, because I, I do think that it is a viable solution where the upside significantly outweighs the downside, acknowledging that the risk of something goes wrong is obviously still very material. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we could, but again, that requires political will. And in this case, it, it really just requires, um, one, a strong leader, so let's just call it a, a governor who believes in it and will push it forward. And then two, either uh, general willingness by both parties to say, yeah, this is probably the right thing to do. We're not going to go out there uh, and just sort of create a narrative that makes this absolutely impossible, um, or a governor powerful enough to just push it through. But look, that's really hard. You know, it, before his implosion, Andrew Cuomo was one of the most powerful politicians in this country. Uh, he tried to bring the most powerful company, maybe Amazon, um, to New York City. 
and a handful of local politicians was able to scuttle the entire thing. So um, in theory, it would be great. But I think because it's so easy in politics to kill stuff and so hard to do stuff, you know, all, all of the advantage still lies on the NIMBY side of it. Bob, where are you on nuclear energy? So Illinois passed a nuclear facility bailout this year. It kept two of its nuclear plants open. Um, the big challenge for Illinois has not been that anyone had problems with with its nuclear baseload. I think everyone here appreciates the fact that nuclear baseload keeps our power really cheap compared to the rest of the country. The problem is that these plants are old and that you know you don't want to continue to retrofit them because it's it becomes increasingly costly. At some point, if we want to do something like this, and I agree, it just it's going to take political will. It's finding a state that realizes that its power is too high not to have some type of nuclear base load and wants to promote someone building new facilities. Bradley, I actually want both of you to answer this question, but maybe to start with you, Bradley. Do you know anybody who is planning their own future or their family's future with climate change in mind, you know, in terms of like buying real estate or picking a different place to live or anything like that? Uh, not not really, uh, although I have occasionally made the argument at the harbor that we should pick up a place you know, more inland in the mountains somewhere for, for that reason. Um, no, but, but but let me let me flip it around a little bit. I worry significantly, and look, all, all three of us have kids in a relatively tight age range, that we are underestimating the psychological impact of climate change uh, on the development of kids today, and that many of them are living with a level of existential dread that far exceeds kind of what we worried about during the Cold War with a, a nuclear holocaust or something like that. Um, and that... You know, on one hand, maybe that's what ultimately forces the change that needs to happen to solve the problem. But on the other hand, I think if you are living in a world where you believe that the world is effectively going to end before you're even a, a fully fledged adult, it's very hard to care about all the stuff that your parents are telling you to care about, right? And and the, and the information they have may not be totally accurate, but given that everyone now operates in these very closed environments where your information comes from like-minded people on whatever channel you subscribe to, if that's what they're seeing on TikTok and Instagram, then in their mind, it might as well be true. Well, it is interesting. The TikTok, uh, Instagram thing is, is I mean, it's 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 very scary and 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 very much. I mean, I don't know one sided is the right way to put it because I'm not sure what the other side is, but it's definitely um, it's definitely scary. Um, Bob, what about you in terms of just having discussions with friends, peers, whatever about about the kind of how to live our lives, you know, in the near term future according to climate change? It, look, the one part I think I guess I disagree on is I'm not sure that when we were all collectively growing up, we weren't caught by mass hysteria and paranoia either. Right. Like I saw the morning after and I know I played a lot in like post-apocalyptic Mad Max style post-nuclear Holocaust universe over the fact that nuclear weapons were a major concern. Um, now, fortunately, in all of our lifetimes, nothing like that has ever come to be. And it's through, I'm sure, a lot of people's hard work. Um, do I do I think that that's going to that same type of paranoia is happening around climate change? Yes, it's unquestionable. It's unquestionable that it is. But I think you almost need that level of diligence to keep people working at, at the idea of trying to find solutions because the solutions are so hard and it takes so much time and energy to, to change some of our, you know, our activities and our uses that you kind of you need that degree of anxiety in order to, to actually have people politically motivated to make change. I think that's a good uh, a good note to leave it on and, and and switch the discussion at least for now into to the uplifting and cheerful subject of infrastructure, which um, puts a smile on everybody's face. Um, you guys uh, co-authored a piece in Fast Company last week about 
what Biden needs to do now that now that the the bill is passed and and uh, the the spending can begin, um, and the ways he needs to accelerate that. Bradley, do you want to just? I want to walk through the three steps that you guys identify, but first, just maybe you give the overview of the of the piece itself. Yeah, I mean, look, just the the point is they finally managed to pass an infrastructure bill. That's great. But if you look at Biden's numbers, look at the Washington Post ABC News poll that came out yesterday, the the passage of the bill itself is not enough of a political win to move the needle. And I think if you want to see real political benefit before 2024, um, it's got to translate into things that are more tangible, into money hitting the streets, into ribbon cuttings, into groundbreakings, into job creation. You know, infrastructure spending can do a lot of good, um, but at the same time, a lot of it is hidden. Uh, and even worse, it's an unbelievably slow bureaucratic process, which means it, you may ultimately get that bridge fixed or that tunnel fixed or the broadband built or whatever it is. But it happens on a slow governmental timeline, not a political timeline. Uh, so if you are the Biden administration and you want to be able to point to infrastructure as an argument for re-election in 2024, um, just thinking the passage of the bill is sufficient to me, it's just very typical kind of inside Washington thinking that, that just does not reflect the reality of this country. So what, what would be the first step in that? What, what do you, you want to take that on, Bob? Sure. I mean, the first step in the article that we talked about is is finding and appointing somebody who's going to be the lead and just driving this home. Um, and I, I think all of us have seen the news that, that uh, President Biden appointed Mitch Landrieu to to pick a role like this. I'm not sure that he is the person to do that. I'm hoping that he has the support and staff to actually find, you know, as we described, the most aggressive and obnoxious person in Washington, Washington to get stuff done. Now, Bob, you skipped ahead to step three. I just want you to know that the you, you've, you've, you've taken the, the drama out of this presentation a little uh, bit. But go ahead with Mitch Landro. Is he, he's not enough of a jerk in, in your estimation. I, he is objectively neither an aggressive or an obnoxious person. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call him that. I hope he can hire somebody to do that. He is someone who people will pick up the phone. Yeah, and, and I, so I, I, this morning when I saw the news, I texted a, a friend of mine named Patrick Brennan, who is pretty close with Landrew, just to get his take on how he thinks you know Mitch will do in the job. And, and he he agreed with Bob in that you know he, Landrew is not sort of a overly aggressive, uh, obnoxious personality that will upset the apple cart at every turn. Um, but he did make a good point that Landrew does have a good infrastructure record uh, in his time as mayor of New Orleans, kind of capped by the building of the new airport down there, um, and that he's an exceptional politician and salesperson. So um, if, if he went out and constantly sold the infrastructure bill, and here's what we're doing, and here's the impact, and here's how it's helping these specific communities and these specific jurisdictions, um, you know, that could be very valuable. So while, it, to me, the most valuable thing would be someone who could knock a lot of heads and just move money out the door and get shit done, uh, you know, maybe the second most valuable thing would be someone who can make a compelling case for why this is important in the first place. But it seems like I, I, I heard the uh, Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy, uh, interviewed on NPR this morning, and she was going on, this is a five, 10 year process, don't expect you know the world to change tomorrow kind of stuff. And it, it, it struck me as almost exactly opposite of what you guys are talking about. You know, she's like, well, you know, some roads will get fixed and things like that, but, but, but be patient, you know, like these things take time. And it, it, it's, it was just sort of funny just after thinking about your guys' story that like they really it's, – it's not just Mitch Landro, uh, you know, or, or his people. They kind of need the whole administration kind of targeted uh, targeting this, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and that's disappointing to hear that she said that, but also not surprising, right? That is 
very indicative of kind of a, a bureaucratic mentality um, and kind of typical political mentality. But look, you know, for COVID, they worked really fast and they were able to suspend all kinds of normal procedures and processes and everything else that they're very built in for integrity and transparency, but make things take an incredibly long time. And they were to spend a lot of that and instead just move the resources through uh, to get drugs you know, developed and, and approved uh, and out the door. So, so there is a very recent track record of doing it. Now, is COVID more important than infrastructure fixes? Yeah, of, of, of course it is. Um, but, but when we want to do it, we can assemble the will to. Um, Bradley, I know that that or Bob Bradley was just talking about appointing you like I think world emperor was that it? Um, um, now I'm universe, gonna, global, you know, and, and let's yeah. go bigger than that. Like well, I'm, I'm going to demote you now and just put you in charge of Chicago infrastructure. So you you now have a smaller job. Um, no, people in Chicago would say that's a bigger job. Okay. Well, um, in any case, it, w- what does Chicago need right now that would make a difference? Like that that would change the perspective of of people. Uh, in Chicago towards the federal government. Can you think of something? Or So Chicago is, is kind of a nutshell everything that's wrong with the infrastructure bill politically. There is. And in fact, Chicago will get it out the door. We have a ton of lead pipes in the ground. Under Without the infrastructure bill, it was going to take until 2075 to get all the lead drinking water pipes out of the ground. This will massively speed it up. Chicago's already ready, has a plan in place. You can get it out the door and Chicago residents will be very happy about the infrastructure bill because they will see streets dug up. They will see, you know, slower traffic, but they'll know that they don't have lead in their drinking water, which is like, as somebody with young kids, a completely frightening phenomenon. The problem is Chicago is already 80 percent Democrat. Right. Chicago is not the people that you need to be solving with the infrastructure bill. But there's no state in the country that probably doesn't have a, a lead pipe problem. Right. So maybe this com- comes down to kind of political skill by a Landrew where, yeah, like so in, in, in Michigan, where we know there have been problems and we know that's a tight swing state, that's where you've really got to push. Right. And the, ch- the challenge, I think, for them is figuring out those places that are have the confluence of being ready to push infrastructure, ready to get, you know, ready to get something out the door and able to do it and also being enough of a swing state to matter. I mean, the Chicago suburbs, it's going to be all all transportation funding that's right. going to matter. And there's there's enough in the bill to do that. Um, but that's that's you know, that's where the battleground will be for 2022. Um, and that's you know, we're going to have to see Landrew as ribbon cutter in chief across Chicago's outlying suburbs for a day. Bradley, uh, New York, not a swing state either. Um, uh, solidly Democratic, obviously. Um, but is there stuff that, that you see making a difference in New York? Um, well, I think the thing that's the most important are the, the gateway tunnels. So right now we've only got two tunnels that connect uh, New York and New Jersey for trains. And if either of those tunnels were to shut down, um, it basically stops all Amtrak service across the entire Northeast and regional rail service, um, which is just a huge blow to the economy. So uh, for years now, New York City mayors, governors, senators have been banging the drum, and, and New Jersey too, by the way, uh, including Josh Gottheimer and brother-in-law, who I guess I now try to plug on a regular basis, um, have all been banging the drum for infrastructure for gateway funding. Uh, I believe there's something like $9 billion dollars. Um, in the infrastructure bill for it. So that's the money or a good chunk of what they need. So yeah, it'll just have a very, it won't be the kind of impact that you see or feel because at best something doesn't go bad that could go bad otherwise. Um, but but it is really critical. And if 
if if you don't do anything, something bad will invariably happen. People will get blamed. Um, and then while that wouldn't cause the Democrats to lose control of a state like New York, um, it would still, you know, create more momentum for the other side. So what is your level of optimism now? We're, 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 uh, uh, we have the appointment of Landro. Like, uh, do, you, do you feel like the, the Biden administration is getting it, going to get it? Um, no. I mean, my, the optimism is good in the sense that the bill is law. Um, it provides a lot of necessary upgrades, uh, both to basic stuff like bridges and roads and tunnels, but also to newer ideas, um, you know, like broadband. And so, um, so that's all very good. With that said, if the goal is how do people feel this tangibly before 2024 so that Biden has a one that he could point to to try to fend off Trump, um, do I think that they will be able to make things happen quickly enough to have that benefit now? Uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, Bob, is there anything else you want to add on, on the infrastructure or, or with your powers, uh, world emperor, also infrastructure czar of Chicago? Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I No. <laughs> I'm I'm totally good. Is I'm going to keep all the other secret directives um, in in confidential status. Right. And then Hugo, I'm, I'm going to plug a couple of books and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, please. Before we go, you didn't so, mention these to me, so I don't even know what you're. Yeah, talk. I know. So uh, I've been reading Gary Steingart's new book, Our Country Friends. Um, I'm really enjoying it. My kind of political consultant text chain that that comes up sometimes on this podcast. Did not like it. Um, I may have a little more of an affinity to it because. Wait, wait. Can I stop yeah. you there for a second, Bradley? Your political text consulting chain also is a book chain. Like they, you guys are all reading Gary Steingart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. Four, four of the five people. One, I don't think is much of a reader. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, for sure. Um, but, but at the same time, and look, I, I may because I grew up as a first-generation American in a Russian immigrant household, I may have more fondness and appreciation for Gary's work than, than other people because it resonates with uh, a lot of my own childhood. Um, but but it, it's a book about, uh, you know, a, a writer just like Gary, it's just meant to be him with a different name, who has a, a house in upstate New York during the pandemic and has all these little cottages and he invites different people, friends of his, to stay there. And it's about kind of all of the ways they interact with each other and deal with each other during the pandemic, all of their obviously personal problems, professional, how they all come together. Um, I have found it entertaining. Now, again, I think it's right where, I, I know where Gary's house is in real life upstate, and I think it is it is right near our house. So maybe I'm also sort of attracted to it because I know the terrain, uh, but I'm enjoying that. And there's a TV show that Megan had recommended to me called The Premise on Hulu, uh, that I have really enjoyed. And it is uh, B.J. Novak from The Office wrote it and I guess made it in whatever form that takes. Um, but it basically tries to flip, you know, various societal norms and conventions on their head, uh, often poking fun sometimes at the far left as well. So like there's one episode where uh, a, valid, a, a rock star comes back to his high school, um, announces a million dollar gift uh, for um, the school library. Literally nobody cheers. So then he kind of panics and adds more. And he says, and the valedictorian can come to my next concert in L.A. and come to my house in Hollywood Hills. And people are getting excited. And then he says, and I will fuck you. Um, and then the whole episode then is about how all of these students are studying really hard to try to be the valedictorian uh, and how the whole thing goes down. So that was entertaining. Uh, there was one where 
Uh, it was about an African-American man uh, falsely accused of assaulting a police officer. Um, information came into the lawyers that was uh, exonerating for him, but it was gotten, it was sort of in the corner of a sex tape. And then the episode was about the guy who made the sex tape because he, uh, the, the prosecution, rather than trying to um, refute uh, the, the, the video itself, just basically said, um, this guy is such a loser that he can't be trusted. Uh, and then the entire episode was bringing up all of his yeah, girlfriends. Yeah, sounds perfect for you. That's yeah, you, it really was. So exactly the kind of like um, it's it's like right in your own mind. Yeah, right? and there was another one this morning about like uh, rich guy who had been bullied and gets his revenge, which I can obviously relate to. Um, but you watched one this morning. I was working out. Yeah, to, I, if oh. I watch something that I'm enjoying while I'm doing cardio, cardio is like infinitely more tolerable for me. So anyway, those are my recommendations. All right. Uh, Thursday, we've got Evan Vandenberg. He is the founder and CEO of Dibs. It's one of our portfolio companies, and uh, they're big in the NFT space. So if you're interested in NFTs, good episode to listen to. And uh, we'll see you guys next week after that. Thanks, Bradley. Thanks, Bob. All right. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Hugo. Thanks. Bye.